you, you can holler, you can applaud, you can scream, you can do anything you want. I can't hear you anyway. <laughs> Welcome to Salt Lake Dirt. I'm your host, Kyler Bingham. Today on the show, I am thrilled to welcome one of my favorite writers, Megan Abbott. Megan is the author of The Turnout, Dare Me, Queen Pin, um, several others, incredible noir thriller writer, just the best. Like you, you can't you can't read anything better, in my opinion. Dare Me also got turned into a Netflix series, which I, I really dug. Um, and then we had her on a couple years ago to talk about the turnout. I heard that that is getting made into either a TV show or a movie. And then same with Beware the Woman, which comes out May 30th, by the way. Um, once the writer strike stuff gets sorted out, this will be made into a film, it looks like. Um, very, very cinematic. I can't, I can't wait uh, for, for that to come about. But yeah, this was such a great chat. Um, I love having Megan on the show. And um, like I said, I'm a huge fan of her work. So uh, you can find links to where you can pick up a copy of Beware the Woman. I know she's doing a bunch of uh, tour dates this summer in promotion of the book. So uh, we'll have a link to where you can find her uh, in your location. I know she's going to be in Denver pretty soon. So um, we have a lot of Salt Lake listeners and um, not too far of a drive. Check it out. Okay, so let's get to it and talk to Megan Abbott on the Salt Lake Dirt podcast. Thanks for listening. But yeah, Megan, thank you so much for joining me. We're here to talk about your brand new book that comes out May 30th, Beware the Woman. Um, thanks for being here. Oh, so happy to be back. Yeah, so I I you're you become one of my favorite writers, and I honestly mean that. Um, and so I was really excited to hear about this one um and i've been i've been trying to be better with self-control like with binging uh tv shows and also when a when a book that i really know i'm gonna like or i'm pretty sure i'm gonna like i try to pace it out whereas before i would just blaze through it so this is one that i had like intentionally paced out so i would finish it this morning before i spoke to you so it'd be kind of fresh on my mind So I've been um, kind of kind of chewing on it for the past three weeks, and um, well, first off, I love it. I mean, it's always tough talking about books like this because you don't want to give any spoilers to uh, to the audience. But um, I, I guess one thing I can say that's vague enough: I've never felt it. It, it just your books kind of give me this really f- a physical sensation that I don't get from a lot of writers. So I felt so claustrophobic when I read <laughs> this one. <laughs> so I guess just talk to us about, you know, about the book and kind of the genesis yeah. of it. Um, I love it. Oh, I'm so glad. Yeah. I, I, I've heard cost. I often get claustrophobic, <laughs> but in this book in particular, because it's set in one location over just a few days. So it was really ramping up the, uh, uh, the feeling, but this book sort of came out of nowhere for me. I was sort of was interested in writing something about a pregnant woman and, um, and just some of the, um, 
I had had some conversations with friends I knew about um, the intensity of pregnancy, like unexpected intensity of it with with their husband or family members and how um, how much they became this sort of object that people felt that they could touch or um, or have, you know, uh, opinions about and how it kind of made them feel kind of open to um, judgment or even surveillance in some way. What are you eating? What are you, are you drinking? Are you, you know, should you, you know, should be eating that piece of cheese, you know, that kind of stuff. So it was really interested in that. And, um, and that, and then also it's a sort of, it's about a newly married, newly pregnant woman and that she's still also in the sort of flush of love, you know, that stage where everything sort of seems this romantic haze. Um, and so she's quite vulnerable. And then I wanted to put her and her, so it's JC and her husband, Jed, that they, you know, that, that sort of critical moment in a relationship when you meet the, um, the family <laughs> members of the person you're involved with and, so I, I I had heard of a few cases of people I know that this happened to where they hadn't really met the family till after they were married, um, just because of COVID at that time and yeah. different things. But um, that you because you see different sides of the person you're involved with when you see them with their family. And and I know we all know that from when we're with our family, we can regress or I, I sort of <laughs> mm, become 13 sure. again. Yeah, same here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is just sort of so I sort of wanted to set all these things in motion that um that they would go to this sort of I'm from Michigan, this remote part of Michigan, the Upper okay. Peninsula. And it's sort of a it's a beautiful and kind of spooky place. Um and and that it was sort of this notion of sort of being stuck up there with with all this sort of <laughs> Things she doesn't anticipate about her husband's family, in this case, her father-in-law and his history, you know, her husband's sort of family history and and all while she's pregnant and very much the sort of her pregnancy is the focus of the trip. So that she, you know, would feel increasingly, <laughs> increasingly under the um, micro, um, microscope, I guess. So, yeah, that was sort of the the premise. And then things sort of took a life on, on their, of their own from there. Yeah. <clears throat> and excuse me, like I said, I mean, definitely people need to check this out because it does it, it definitely took turns that I did not see coming and uh just like just so fulfilled i love when like you you read the last page of a book and it just all kind of like clicks and it's just this ah feels great it's the best feeling and and like i said it's fresh on my mind because i just finished it this morning but w one thing i wanted to talk about it just um you know with this book and then with the last book you have a way of writing um these these Charis kind of well charismatic male figures that are very yeah. unsettling um and it's like a slow progression of it so and that's one thing like i i don't know maybe kind of in a funny way but also like in a serious way like one thing i found in my life when i whenever i meet someone who's super charismatic i get very suspicious of them yeah. very, <laughs> very quickly and i and you just nail it completely like, how do you capture that and let it unfold in that way? Like, how do you develop a character so rich as uh, Jed's father, Dr. Ash? Yeah, it is tricky because you you don't want them to make turns that feel unbelievable, sort mm -hmm. of like the 
you know, someone pulling off their mask in the soap opera or something. But um, I have, I do feel, I guess in some ways, sort of the um fatal, you know, you've heard of the femme fatal, right? Where um, it's sort of a dangerous woman, but in some ways, this sort of male version, it is often very charismatic men who um, really know what, what women, you know, in general terms want to hear. And I, going up in the Midwest, and this is not a characterization of the Midwest, these men are everywhere, but <laughs> there is something about the Midwest you know, very, people are very friendly and and nice, and hosp- hospitality is a big feature of it, and just sort of geniality. And there is a particular kind of man there that um, is so winning um, when you meet him, and um, very gallant often, especially men of Dr. Ash's generation. Um, they really know how to say the right things, and always something like you i I feel that there's something sinister in that you you know even as i've fallen for it many times and then like in some ways you just prefer the dirt but you know what you're getting yeah yeah yeah. oh but i think it's sort of in some ways um it's sort of like there's been so much cultural discussion about gaslighting and this notion of you, you know i think in the last six or seven years this sort of anxiety about um that you think you think uh you think you're on the same page with the the men in your life about about things and and maybe you're not so i think certainly what was going on in the culture was probably sort of <laughs> seeding its way into the book to that um and to that idea of when you um you're marrying into a family um when you get married for the most in most cases and um, I think there's some there can be something really disorienting about that because you never really can be sure of all the the tripwires and the sort of intricacies of the family. And so I think in some ways, Dr. Ash kind of embodies all of that, yeah. and it, it, you capture the feeling of, you know, we've we've all we've all had it, but I hear that from a lot of my my female friends where, it's like, am I, am I crazy here? Like, I, I don't think I'm crazy, but they're making me feel like I'm crazy. And you're trying to evaluate, am I the problem? And no, you're not the problem. It's <laughs> what's going on around you. And you just, I just had so much empathy for JC in this situation because, um, you know, there's no cell phone reception really. It's, right. it's like a lot of, a lot of conveniences that we have, you know, in this remote part of, of uh, yeah. she just can't, she can't do it. <laughs> it's very, there's a lot of my primal fears that, that fed into that <laughs> and like not having Wi-Fi in a situation where you, you know, it's sort of like that rule, don't go to a second location, you know, yes. like these sort of things that just make you nervous and not having Wi-Fi or not having service and, um, and as a city dweller being in the country or a, a kind of remote area and not really knowing um, what you having sort of no control too. also when you're seeing in-laws, you often don't have a lot of control over what, <laughs> what the activities are and sort of, yeah, playing so a, a lot on that. <laughs> and, and I also was sort of one of the inspirations was Rosemary's baby, which is, this is not a book about a demon or Satan, but that's a book um, and movie, but the book is wonderful. Um, that really by Ira Levin, 
is great at the when no one believes you kind of story, which, you know, that's big film noir trope too, but it's something I've always found so terrifying when um, you have something crazy has happened. And of course it sound you know, it sounds crazy to people. So you just sort of that, that sort of terrifying feeling. I think, you know, I think it's a feeling we all recognize and uh, I wanted to tap into that. <laughs> no. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's great. Uh, very unsettling. I love, so I, I what I thought I like about your books too, is I, I, I feel like I get an education in, in a lot of different things. So like corn, Cornish, um, culture, which I had no, I don't know anything about. Um, and maybe, maybe you could speak to that and then something else yeah. I want to ask you, but yeah, that one first Cornish, like I was very intrigued, like with the food. Uh, yes, this was such a weird, uh, I mean, I did not intend to write about Cornish minor history in, in upstate <laughs> Michigan, but I had grown up in Michigan, even in where I'm from Detroit area, so far away from the upper peninsula, but pasties as they're called which are these sort of hand pies usually meat pies were always sort of known as the staple of the upper peninsula but I, i'd never really known the story and then i did know that the mining that was so big in the upper peninsula back in the day was there were a lot of people that had come from cornwall england these cornish miners which weirdly i knew because on the show deadwood a lot of the miners on that show are also from cornwall and they speak this yeah. very thick dialect and yeah. are very insular and so um so that started to really interest me and thinking about when you're in a place you don't know and there's often these foods that like the local cuisine that you're supposed to take part in and it it sort of seems strange somehow and it's sort of part of the excitement of it but also is sort of uh places you out of it and it was just so interesting to think about those miners and upper peninsula is so beautiful but it's been so fully strip mined uh it was so sort of ravaged by mining um and that sort of that's all gone now like all industry in america um but there's sort of the ghost of sort of exploited workers you know um immigrant populations um industrialization and and so that all seems so so interesting, um, though it just mostly takes the form of these pasties. <laughs> yeah, well, like, <laughs> yeah, that was like, so when they, unless I, like, from what I remember, like, you, they eat it so they can discard it because their their fingertips have, like, all that, you know, toxic stuff on it, right? That's right. That's right. Because <laughs> they'll have, like, um, uh, arsenic, essentially, mm-hmm. on on their hands. So they would have it in these wrappers or um and be able not to touch it touch as little as possible so you can poison yourself as little as possible. <laughs> just a little bit right <laughs> yeah uh and then okay yeah fascinating and then the other thing was um so one of my favorite i don't live super far from las vegas so i go there a fair amount and one of my favorite spots there um it's called the the neon it's either the neon boneyard or the neon graveyard and oh, they, yes. they take all the old signs i don't know if you've had a chance to to go there but it's it's outstanding and they have all these old neon signs from um you know casinos that have been long blown up and it's just a and it's like it looks like a junkyard you know and and um very cool so just uh jed's profession uh, talk to us about that. That was really interesting yeah. to me and how that you kept kind of throwing in details about his work. 
Yes, I, I'm, I've always wanted to go there. I've heard about that place, cool. but have never been. Yeah, it sounds great. And I um, always sort of as a lover of mid-century, have always loved real neon signs. And was at a dinner party several years ago where I met a woman whose brother was one of the last people to be um tutored by in the art of um uh, neon signs because now it's all led it's not it's very rare there's very, there's just not that many left that know how to really do it the art of it and of course it was a dominant it was you know neon signs were everywhere and it's sort of been supplanted and he had even if I got this right, he even had left school because it was sort of you apprentice, you apprentice to someone who knew it. So you're pat they they would be passing along how to do this. And you know, um it's to bending, bending the tubes and the sort of there's a real art to it and there's a real physical quality to it, but also a kind of mysterious element to the great ones. And um, and I just thought it was so interesting for someone like Ted, and he's raised by a doctor. And I think the expectation is that he would go into some field like that or something very practical and very um, academic. And it's sort of to me the, I guess that he would, and, and JC is an art teacher and loves the arts and sort of Jed J, uh, is sort of caught somehow between these two sides of himself, I think, because I do think he's really an artist at heart. But he felt like he had to have a trade at least, and so somehow, because you can make a living, some can you know making, especially for all this sort of um, hipster <laughs> vintage play, you know, return mm -hmm. um, of vintage make signs, and that you could still make a living at that, and it was a trade, and there was a scientific element working with the elements, but it's sort of, and I hadn't planned this at the time. I just thought, oh, that's an interesting profession because I've talked to other novelists about this, but. <laughs> always trying to understand how other people's jobs work. <laughs> you have to write, just don't want to write about writers who are the most boring people in the world. So you want to write about people with interesting professions, but that you can actually understand. So I read a lot about it, but then it seemed ultimately like the perfect thing for him because he's sort of a tormented young man because I, I think he, he you know, he wants to, be his own person and do his own thing but i think he still feels the pull of responsibility and expectation like like so many of us <laughs> yeah definitely um and then i i would love to hear you talk as you know as much or as little as you want about mrs brant who who she is yeah. and, and just kind of you know her her mysterious role um very intriguing character uh, she emerged, so she's sort of the caretaker of the house that Dr. Ash lives in, and always a feature of often gothic novels. Certainly, Rebecca is the most classic example, where if, if you've seen the movie, there's the, Mrs. Danvers is sort of the housekeeper and is a very forbidding person, but often in gothic stories or movies, there is this... Um, someone that works at the house the creepy scary gorgeous manner that um in some ways mrs brand i think came to me out of that tradition um but she became so much more interesting to me as the book went on i didn't really know what she was going to be doing in the book when i started as i often don't i know the sort of big 
broad strokes of the book, but I don't necessarily know what every character's role is going to be. And and then I I just those people have always interested me. Uh, um, the the house manager or the docent, you know, in museums or or historic houses that know so much about it, in some ways, are the keepers of this tradition, and they occupy this sort of in between space um, where they're in some ways servants, but there's some ways family, and um, and I think for JC, one of the disorienting things is figuring out where Mrs. Brandt <laughs> belongs in this. Like, who is this woman? What is she doing here? And and Jed, I think, only increases her confusion because she had a sort of occupied a large part of his romantic fantasy world as a young boy because it was this woman in his in yeah. his house and as someone who grew up without a mom i think she you know she's um both a motherly figure and not his mother um and so it just she started to take on a larger role as the book went on it's one of the most fun parts of novels to me is that you don't always know um how uh, you know what what that person what that character is in there to do or um, what role they're in to play. But she was so interesting to me. She kept getting a bigger role. <laughs> yeah, fascinating. Like It almost kind of felt like this wonderful stage play to me because it was in this very, you know, small, just, just at the property there. Uh, yeah. For, you know, yeah, someone else said that to me too, that it was because it even like entrances and exits and, and it was sort of one of the, interesting challenges writing is because most of it takes place in this house in the surrounding area so that makes sense to me yeah and i remember when we talked last time with with the turnout how you and i loved that approach to writing that that and you just mentioned it here where you kind of have the broad strokes and the big maybe some of the big plot points but um so i felt like it was like the perfect balance between uh, outlining and pantsing where you can right. kind of you so yeah I, I love that and I've been like tried to model <laughs> the stuff I'm working on right now after that and I think it you know like, everyone works differently but it it is great because you feel like you still have that sense of discovery and you're learning about the the characters as you write uh, but but still some uh level of structure so I, I just think that's such a cool way to yeah to write. I, I think it's it's so hard for me to know. I don't know the characters yet. And if I box them in, I feel like for me and other people, it's different. They're outlined. They know their character when they're writing their outline, people who really outline. But for me, I don't. And if I stuck to it, then they would be sort of cardboard characters to me mm -hmm. because, I mean, it always sounds a little ridiculous but they haven't they eventually start to take on a life of their own and then they really tell me what they're gonna do yeah. and um, <laughs> you gotta listen to that or the and it's just the most fun right when you're writing surprises you right when you're writing something and 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 it takes a turn that you didn't anticipate i think you gotta follow that stuff yeah with a reason <laughs> yeah no i mean it, it's exciting and i've talked to a lot of writers who've said very similar things where it is um like they, and the, you hit that moment where it's it's like the character takes over, <laughs> like you're possessed in a yes. way, <laughs> yes. you know, which is so cool. Um, and then I think I tend to when I talk to people about you know process, I 
when I kind of find out, usually those are the writers. When I find out that they do that, that's who I kind of gravitate towards because it does feel like I said earlier, when you, when you read the last page, you're just like, yes, this is like, it all comes together and all these different elements and it just ends perfectly. And, um, and it just seems like, how does someone do that and keep the characters fresh uh, while while maintaining that storyline and connecting all of those little little points across That's the right. board. That's right. And it's sort of the importance then revision becomes a little bigger than if you but I think that's part of it. Then you you know so you have to sort of adjust usually the first part of the book needs some adjustment and um, but often things do just come together. Sometimes it sort of reminds me of a, like a video game where you're like picking up these things on the way and you don't know what you're going to use mm, them for and yeah. you turn out to need them. And I don't play a lot of the video games, but from my from my Odyssey days back in the <laughs> 80s, I'm putting things in your satchel and you might you might need this amulet later. And uh, <laughs> it gets a little bit how it feels. <laughs> That's yeah, I know that game. That's great. Uh, <laughs> so. I, you've written, is this your, you've written several, this is like your 12th or 13th book, I think. I think it's the 11th, well, 12th if you count my nonfiction books. So okay. yes, that's right. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, that, that's incredible. That's, that blows me away. I mean, because it, 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 it isn't a, um, like, uh, what am I trying to say here? You're not repeating characters. So I think some, like, a right. like I love Lee Child, but they, you know, the characters are repeating, which is great. You know, I love that. I love that format, that genre. But someone who is, like, starting fresh each time, I'm always curious, like, when you end a project, it has got to be, like, I don't know, depleting, depleting or just kind of like, oh, I'm so glad I'm done. Like, I never... I don't know if you feel that way. Like, I'm just curious how you feel when you finish. And then because you do put stuff out every couple of years, it seems like. So is it kind of like, okay, on to the next thing? Or you just like, ah, like, whatever. I need a, I need a break. (laughs) I don't know. I'm just curious. It is. uh, I talk about that a lot with writers who write series, you know, it's different because you don't have to set the whole table each time and you, have usually a main character at least even if they move around a lot but you also have a tone you know if you have a series you know a detective series or a cop series but I would never it's so I love reading those and I'm so glad people write them but I could never do that because I really do want to exit that world when I finish that book and I don't want to touch it again and I'm so and I'm so but I'd sort of the last stage of the book I'm usually thinking of ideas for something else sort of in that way when relationships ending and just start to like look around and see what else is out there because the f- so much more fun is the first part of writing a book honestly um and when you're at the end you you just kind of want the high from um something where all is possibility and there aren't these plot problems you have to fix or these pacing issues. It's just, it's just, it's the perfection um, like, like JC's romantic haze that she's in the beginning. It's like a fantasy, but you, you know, it seems like everything's going to be great, you know? <laughs> so I think that's what, what keeps you going. And, you know, I'm always people who write in other, especially literary fiction, you know, it's much more common to have several years between books, but crime writers tend to produce 
very many books. I mean, I'm always always feel like I'm being laughed, but I do think <laughs> there is part of it that's compulsive. You know, I don't know what to do if I'm not in a book or a script. So I think and usually that prefer to be both. So I can, if I'm sick of working on one, I can go to the other. So I remember reading Philip Roth, like, you know, he had to be writing a book at all times. And when he finally retired, he realized he didn't need to be reading a book all the time. And he felt such relief. So I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure that's out there somewhere. But when you're in it, there is a sort of don't know how to operate when I don't have a book going. Right. Um, yeah, I talked to something kind of similar <clears throat> with, um, I think it was Bruce Wagner and he like just <clears throat> always having, kind of having, having something. And it, it's like for his, for your mental health, it's like, it's necessary to do this like yes. a, a comp a compulsion. Exactly. Um, yeah, that's, that's great. I can, I can totally relate to that. Even though I haven't, I don't have anything published yet, but I do, I do feel that like, I feel I get really kind of cranky and irritable if I haven't been writing. And then I just, it like, yeah, that's the, that's the missing component. I'm not doing that. And I'm becoming kind of a jerky person. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's sort of miserable to be around. And I, yeah, I think um, it's why writers are mostly introverts. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I want to talk about, I saw, I noticed on social media, you were, uh, at an event called Hamptons Who Done It, and that looked really cool. There was especially the the panels you were on. You know, since I wasn't able to be there, they looked really interesting to me. So, Sisters in Crime, and then Neo Noir. Um, maybe you could speak about that event and just kind of the the, the panel sounded really fascinating to me. Yeah, it was really it was a first time event um, that um, and it was it was great. Um, first of all, it's very easy to get writers to go to a festival if you have it in the Hamptons and they get to <laughs> recline <laughs> in the nice B&B. &B and uh, but it was really very good um, the, because the, you know, there are a lot of writers involved in the organizing of it, like A.J. Finn and Alifair Burke and. Um, and so it's sort of creating the panel ideas so that it, they weren't kind of imposed. On, they were sort of came organic, like the sisters in crime. Often I get stuck on panels like women writing crime, or like over half crime writers are women. Yeah. So why are we doing this? But that was really about um, relationships between women, how crime novels can explore some of the complications about relationships between and among women. So some of the... Um, especially some of the things that are sort of taboo to that, you know, that sort of behind closed doors that women discuss that there's, you know, feelings that they're not supposed to have or, um, you know, sort of subversive desire or anger or rage or unhappy being a mother at, at moments or sort of these things that are still sort of we weirdly sort, sort of forbidden to say aloud in some in so much of the culture, but in crime novels that all gets you have the crime becomes a vehicle to explore all these other elements, um, domestic abuse, um, eating disorders, like every kind of thing that sort of is still so historically was it's just been so sort of shunned. And I think that's why almost, I think it's something like 80% of crime novels are bought by women. And I think that's mm -hmm. why. Um, and so that was really good. And then neo-noir was, 
really just to sort of how noir, you know, um, it's been around since the 40s and um, there's sort of a lot of confusion over what it means. And I think it's really just a mood or a tone of paranoia and disillusionment and a kind of glamour and dread and um, but it does seem to come and go in, in that popularity. And the 70s had a big, what they called neo-noir movement with all the sort of gritty movies and um, the sort of taxi driver and all the sort of great um, parallax view and the sort of return and the end of the 80s. And, but now there's sort of been a big resurgence and just talking about in post-pandemic, post national <laughs> um uh post trump era you know sort of the really changing of the um you know <laughs> these sort of distrust in institutions seem to be pretty high now yeah. and that seems like a uh a, a big factor and um so we sort of were talking about why noir keeps coming back and then how it changes in different climates now you know Historically, it was a predominantly white man writing those books, and it's not that way anymore. And in some ways, it never really was. Those were just the books that stayed in print, um, Chandler and Hammett. But so so we really got some great conversations. And it's, you know, in the pandemic, we hadn't had – crime fiction community is pretty tight – used to seeing each other all the time, but there had been like obviously this long lull. And so it's been great to go to some of these festivals, like LA festival books and right. different ones yeah. to get, yeah. yeah, to get people back together again. Yeah. That's exciting. And then, I mean, I, I, I noticed this after the book comes out, you're doing, you're doing a tour that you're, you're going to be all over the place. So that's, that's pretty yes. cool. So books you're, you're going to be in Arizona, you know, not super far from, from where I'm at, but that's, yeah, you're all over the place. So that's, that's going to be exciting. Yeah. Back on the road. I say I haven't been on the road since 2018. So wow. five years. Cause the last book is, as, as we were recalling was in the height of the pandemic. So it's been a while. So it'd be good, it'd be good to be back out there. Uh, reckoning with the, uh, um, the travel situation and all the airplane woes of late. I'm not looking forward to, but everything yeah. else I am and to getting out to these great bookstores and actually talking to real people. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, I mean, it, I love going to a town or a city that I've, if I've never been there and just finding the local bookstores because okay. th that's just the best thing. And so I think I'd imagine as a, as an author, when you have that opportunity to kind of see places in all different regions of of the country or you know even the world that's got to be one of the highlights it is because i don't ever take vacations so i never <laughs> go anywhere if it's not for books but i've been to so many of these amazing cities I, and this time i have a few new ones i've never been to wichita i've never been to kansas um so and it's I've a never, cool you know, I, it's a cool it's, place i like that's wichita. what i've heard yeah i really like and wichita yeah that's good to hear well you'll have, you'll have to send along any recommendations you have of stuff yeah. to hit while i'm there Definitely. but um that is sort of you know some of these places i never would have been tulsa i was at a few years ago for a book festival which was an incredible city and um and you know st louis i've been to a few times and and sort of get to discover that and so it is really one of the best parts of touring because you know really get to see a little bit of the country each time and you know it's sort of uh 
Um, and seeing these wonderful independent bookstores, almost all my events are with independent bookstores and um, they're always so special and, um, and it's sort of so great. I end up buying a ton of books and then <laughs> having to ship them home. So it's good for that too. <laughs> oh, that's exciting. Um, one thing I've, I really enjoy your Instagram page. That's one, whenever I see a story from you pop up, I've always like go through it because you have, and I feel like I get a bit of a, an education from it too. So like maybe a film, an old film I hadn't been aware of before, or uh, you have these great photos of bars that you, yeah. that you go to. Um, so I don't know. I just, not really a question here, but just a thank you for posting very cool things because you know, as we know, there's a lot of garbage <laughs> on social media, well, so it's so, very cool. <laughs> I'm so, I just Instagram, I, I feel like it's still such a relatively pure place because it's not as, you know, it's looking at pictures and I, I've loved it. And I definitely during the pandemic was posting a lot more because I'm seeing a lot of movies and at home and and um and I love to, you know, people finding movies or have seen the movie and share a comment about it. And it's sort of the best version of social media yeah. to me is that kind of stuff. And it's definitely I never took photos before, you know, phones had had cameras and I've just so fallen in love with it. I've actually bought a Polaroid, an old Polaroid and because it does make me look at things more and I do love to take photos now of, you know, various bars and Queens, my neighborhood in Queens. And, and I love to get that little window into other people's world. I think there's something kind of cozy and great about it amidst like, like what goes on on Twitter. <laughs> not that I'm not there yeah. too. But <laughs> <laughs> no, it's great. I, so I went to school for out of high school, um, I think I got the the last kind of like death rattle of film in college. So I went in 99 to 2001, two ish. So I learned in the dark room. So like photography wow. is a big passion. I mean, of mine. so digital was coming out, but it wasn't really, we, the money wasn't there. Like it was like 30 grand for a camera. So it was kind of cool. I've got the, just the last taste of it. Um, you know, it didn't help me in a professional capacity <laughs> whatsoever, but like it was such an important um, thing for me and, and totally shaped, you know, just, you know, films that I eventually fell in love with. It is my whole visual yeah. um, came from that. But one thing I miss is like with the phone, like I miss like the grip of the camera, but I just yeah. got, I, if, I don't know if, if you have that, but you said he didn't really take photos before, but there's one, I forget his name, but I just bought a grip that hooks onto your camera and it has a shutter right here. So oh my gosh. It holds like I'll have to send you if you're interested, it's pretty cool, but it holds on like a camera and then you can just click away like so I have that like muscle memory from holding the the SLR. Yes. But yeah. That's so great. I love <laughs> that. And that, you know, sort of like the neon, it's sort of a lot. I mean, it is I do think there's it's weirdly coming back, but um you, you know, you were raised when it was still happening. So you're always gonna have more of that muscle memory and mm. you sort of and an eye that looks differently and one of the reasons I like the Polaroid, because I, I I don't know if I, I mean, eventually I'd like to get an upright real camera, but um, not the Polaroid, it's not real, but you know, sure, um, sure. <laughs> but I, I, one of the things I, I love about it is, you know, Polaroid, they don't make the cameras, these cameras anymore. And so you have to get 
film that's sort of there's just a lot of leftover film and and it's you know it's like depending on what kind it's one to three dollars an exposure and it really you just think of like a moment longer you spend a little more time on it so you're really grounding yourself in what you're looking at and you're looking longer as opposed to you know with our phones, it's just, you know, endless number of mm-hmm. photos you can take and you never have to think about it all. And then and then having the tactile photo in my hand is just the greatest. So it's this it's this I do think there's a kind of longing that we have for physical things that um is very existential somehow. <laughs> yeah. I mean I love my I love my camera phone and that's what yeah, so I that's what I use pretty much exclusively, but uh recently but it's so true. It's like we long for that tactile thing. I've been sl- I, slowly digitizing old film. So I, I finished that all up just a few weeks ago. Wow. But, but what's so crazy is the I those pictures are like seared into my mind a lot, especially the ones I printed, you know, in yes. the dark room. So they're they're there. And I remember and they're, you know, 20, 25 years ago. And it's all there in my head. Um, so it it's so cool to have that. But then with a phone, I look at photos on my, my Google drive and I'm like, I don't even yes. remember taking that. You totally. Know? So it is like, I guess there's, there's pros and cons to both, but it is cool to, to slow down because everything is so rushed. It's so true. Yes, exactly. And that's just amazing that you were in the dark room. So you really, you're carrying all that with you, even when you're taking pictures on your phone. That's what I think it's sort of, as opposed to to someone who never had that. So yeah. it's always going to have this slightly, to us, this illusory quality of the, the digital. And I think it's all so, it is so fascinating. Yeah. Um, I had a, I had a great professor and he, like, he, he was very tough on us, but he, I think the biggest thing I got out of that was he exposed us to all these photographers that I had, I was totally unaware of. So, uh, and that, like I said, it completely like, transformed like what I liked and which led into film and and my like love of noir now so that all kind of came from that experience so it's it's amazing how one thing connects (laughs) to the next and you know you talk talk to writers all the time about that how yeah even you traveling like on these on this book tour who knows like another a book may come out of one of these cities yeah Definitely. (laughs) I will definitely be taking lots of pictures, you know, uh, probably just on my phone, but uh, I, I think it is, it's great. And I, it's funny what you were saying, because I, I love photography too. I mean, looking at, you know, I have so many favorite photographers, a lot of them, people can diminish it, but I uncovered through Instagram, they know you like, Arbus, so you might like this, or yeah. you know, you like Saul Leiter or William Eggleston, and so you find this other stuff. And I use them a lot in writing when I'm trying to see the like there is inspiration, um, often in photos, yeah. uh, like I do movies. So there's something visual in 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 how I think of mood in particular. And I think you know, photo, nothing like a photo to establish a mood. Yeah, that's so true. I, I do like I keep a um, like in my Google Notes, I just I put in images there that I kind of have off to the side on an open tab when I'm writing just to kind of get so like characters that remind me a picture reminds me of a character and it, it help Yeah, it helps significantly. I mean, when you're when you're writing, I mean, just to have that visual stimulus coming from somewhere. 
Yes. Yes, exactly. It could just, it could just land you. Once it becomes one of the ones that you're thinking about for that book or that story, then, you know, immediately you can look at it and be back in that place. So I think it, there's something kind of holy about it. Yeah. <laughs> when you write a character, here's one thing that I guess I'm just asking advice at, at this point, but like when you write a character, one thing I, I struggle with initially it, it it comes clear over time, but like almost they're, it's like, they're kind of fuzzy. Like yeah. I can't quite see them. I kind of have a feel of what they are, but I can't quite see them. When you write, do you, is it, does it stay that way with you or is it that way? Or do you have a pretty concrete idea of exactly what this person looks like? Almost, almost never that concrete. Usually it's quite fuzzy and just the way you're saying but sometimes uh especially the main character usually is uh but the sometimes there'll be like um dr ashley definitely had a picture in my head of him i just did from the start it wasn't that i built it and and but for the most part i kind of like when i don't because i i want it to i want the reader to fill in a picture I, it's one of the reasons why i try to do as little physical description as possible, mm. even like hair color or like, unless it has to come up for some reason, um, height, you know, sometimes it just comes in there, but I really try to keep a light touch on that. It just has to do with the style of my books. I, I, I love it in other books when there's sort of these great, you know, you can picture them, but I, because of I try to write something that's very, I want to drop the reader in it in this very specific way. And so, especially the main character, I feel like they should see themselves or someone they know or um, um, that they can like entering a dream. That's sort of how I want it. You know how in dreams, it sometimes has that kind of fuzzy quality yeah. and, and can change. And so I, I think, you know, it's always funny when you read old novels, um, like 19th century novels, and every character is described, their hair yeah. color, their weight, their, their bosom, and all these <laughs> kinds of things. And I love that about old novels, but that's just never been natural to me. I do do it, but only when it felt natural. I, um, yeah. I, um, um, but it is interesting to think about having a photo for a character and then you keep looking at it. I think that could be quite useful if it feels right for, if there's a photo that just like, that's that person. And I think, I think that can be great too. Um, I think it, it's just intuitive, right? What feels comfortable. If the fuzziness bothers you, mm -hmm. then I think, you know, maybe trying to conjure something or try some things out and see if they feel right um but i have a friend laura lipman the great novelist and she's very tall and i'm very petite and we often talk about i i can never write tall characters <laughs> and she <laughs> finally had a short character and i remember that she asked me some things about being short and i told her the only time i ever noticed is when i have to put my suitcase in the overhead <laughs> compartment and i have to really do my midwestern smile until some man will help me <laughs> um and she put that in a book it was gratifying oh that's great that's great um that's yeah that that's awesome that's so <laughs> that, that's so interesting like just what you what you just said because i find with your books so you yeah I, completely unaware of that really i didn't really notice but your books i have such a strong visual of the characters so Good. that's pretty wild that yeah that that you know and i guess everyone else 
yeah, just well done, I guess, is what I'm saying there. Because I have <laughs> Dr. Ash and, and all of them, like Brant and all of them, yeah, just are like very strong. I can see them right now, you know? <laughs> That's great. I love it. <laughs> That's so cool. Well, great. Um, this has been... This has been so cool, Megan. I really appreciate you like taking the time again. Um, you're one of my favorites, so it's it's really an honor to have you on the show. Oh, this has been such a delight. I hope we do it again, and I hope we cross paths in IRL, as, as the kids say. Yes. Oh, that would be wonderful. But yeah, be, um, beware the woman, everyone. Megan Abbott uh, comes out May 30th, and... Um, She'll be on the road this summer, so I'll have links to where you can find her online, where you can get the book. Uh, yeah, again, Me Megan, thank you so much. Thank you. This was great. 